Ahmed was shot six times in two seconds, I believe, or four seconds. And four of these bullets were while he was already on the ground. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. I want to talk to you about the Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands. And it begins with this. 26-year-old Ahmed Erekat. He is a cousin of Palestinian diplomat and negotiator Saib Erekat, who died last year of COVID-19. Ahmed was shot by border police seconds after his car hit an Israeli checkpoint between Jerusalem and Bethlehem on the 23rd of June, 2020. Since then, an investigation by a London-based human rights organization has said Erekat was shot while posing no immediate threat. He was not given any first aid by Israeli authorities after the shooting, despite showing clear signs of life. He was treated in an inhumane, degrading manner, did not accelerate towards the police officers, but showed signs of breaking before impact. And he did not approach the police officers as the military claims. This is just one case which could become part of the International Criminal Court's investigation of Israel's treatment of Palestinians, which Israel opposes and has vowed not to cooperate with. On this backstory, the case of Ahmed Erekat, whose body has been held in a freezer since June and is still not being returned to the family. All right, joining me now, first of all, I want to introduce you to Donna Erekat, uh, who is in Amman, Jordan. Hi, Donna. Hi, Dana. How are you? Will you lead me very quickly, uh, before we come to the other people who are going to, we're going to talk with, about what happened to, to Ahmed in, in, in terms of what you believe happened to him? The Israelis say that um, his car hit the, the checkpoint and they fired in self-defense and they just want to move on from that. Sure. So in June of 23rd of last year, it was actually Ahmed's younger sister's wedding. Um, her name is Iman. And Ahmed had dropped off his sister and his mom at the salon and had spoken to his dad and had gone to Bethlehem to run some errands uh, for the wedding. There were a couple of hours left till the wedding was starting. Um, and uh, Ahmed's family, my uncle's family, is located in Abu Dis, uh, which is east of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And he was on his way to Bethlehem. And between Abu Dis and Bethlehem, there is a container, a checkpoint called the container, which is an illegal checkpoint. It's within the Palestinian areas. And what we had seen from the video, I mean, we, we got the call that Ahmed was shot and killed. And what we saw from the video is that Ahmed's car swerved and hit the, the checkpoint. And immediately he was shot and killed. Um, at the moment we got the news, uh, we didn't know, I didn't know here exactly what had happened, but I had sp- I spoke to the family and my uncle, his father, had gotten a call and immediately gone, driven to the checkpoint to see what happened. And he found Ahmed laying down bleeding um, and they would not let anybody approach him. So Ahmed was set to be married uh, within a couple of months. His, actually, his wedding had been postponed due to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And he was 26 years old. He owned a printing shop, a, a T-shirt printing shop, a very active, uh, lively person. And we were all shocked. It was his sister's wedding. We knew in our heart that this was not, could not have been intentional. So what do you think happened then? I mean, the Israelis say he rammed the checkpoint. 
And I guess the problem is in all of these cases is that there will never be any independent investigation at this at this stage. The Israelis are occupying the the area and soldiers will do as they do. And there is really no recourse for Palestinians. We, um, you know, at first we did not know what happened. And that's why we hired an attorney um, in Adala to carry the case forward. We've spoken with Al-Haq repeatedly and we've prepared a UN report to sort of assess from the one video footage that Israel released, the Israeli occupation released, is one video from one angle taken by a phone of a monitor. Although there is more than a dozen cameras on that checkpoint. And they've never released, and, the, they've never released the, the, those camera videos no, to you. But no. what do you believe happened? You feel that we you, believe, I mean, we accident. believe in our hearts that it was an accident, um, that it was an accident. However, from the one video they released, we could not, we could not really tell what had happened. And this is when forensic architecture came in. All right, um, let's, but let's what we didn't know, what we did know for sure, and I want to emphasize that, while we did not know at the time what had happened prior to his killing, what we did know that his killing um, and the prevention of medical care to him is constitutes extrajudicial killing. And that the way he was shot and he was refused treatment and the way that they, the, degre- the way they used um, the body in degrading manners constituted extrajudicial killing and a number of crimes that we carried forward to the UN repertoire with Al-Haq. All right, let's bring in forensic architecture and we're, we're talking to Shoadi, that's the name she uses because for her own protection, she cannot use her real name. Hi, Shoadi. Hi, Dan. And also, uh, Shawan Jabarin is from Al Haq, which is a well known human rights organization in Ramallah. Hi, Shawan. Can both of you tell me what you think of this case? Shoadi? Um, yeah. Um, so, we received a very grainy short video clip from the army and really wanted to start by establishing some of the basic facts of the case that hadn't been established. And so when we started this investigation, we really wanted to understand basic information like how many shots were fired, who did the shooting, what was Ahmed's body position when he was shot. Um, And as we continue to dig in to the claims that the army was making and what the visual footage was showing us, we realized a number of inconsistencies and frankly, factual errors uh, from the army statements. In other words, Ahmed came out of the car moving backwards. He was not running to the army. Uh, he was unarmed, raising his arms. He, there was no evidence that he was provided serious medical attention. And also his car was not accelerating significantly into the checkpoint. On those three accounts, the army's claims were contradicted. And Shawan, I mean, there are so many cases like this in the West Bank. I mean, I was based in in Jerusalem for a long time, and I, I it's all through the 90s. I mean, I covered these cases with uh, Palestinians who um, were, were, were shot by Israeli soldiers, and some of them were quite contentious cases. Um, I, I think in that was probably a different time when the investigations uh, were taken probably a little more seriously than they are today. Would you agree with that? And would you say in general uh, that soldiers from the, the IDF and the West Bank and, and uh, around Gaza, I mean, they're not inside Gaza anymore, uh, generally act as they want to with little recourse for Palestinians if something like this happens? Look, uh, Ahmed's case is not an isolated case. And uh, 
this is part of uh, trend uh, of killing. And uh, what we uh, do for cases like this, uh, we uh, investigate, we document uh, directly, and we send you know our field workers to the field to the scene also to collect uh, and to gather first-hand data as much as we can. And even for Ahmed's case, uh, this is what we did. And for other cases also, this is what we, uh, we did. I'm sure that uh, now if we want to use this method and this uh, kind of uh, uh, work and investigations, uh, we can uh, pick up uh, hundreds of cases of uh, extrajudicial executions. It's not just one case, but I think Ahmed's case, two things in Ahmed's case. One, the Israeli day uh, released this video and also the people on the, uh, <coughs> in the spot at that time, uh, some of them they use also to record by their phones uh, mm -hmm. what's, uh, what's happened. Uh, that's helped in this case. More than that, I think the forensic architecture and the family because also they were active uh, in this. And we came together, you know, uh, just to build the real story and real facts, what's happened in this case. That's what makes it, you know, uh, strong and clear. But I can, I can confirm that it's not an isolate case. Is this the kind of case that you think that the International Criminal Court should be taking up as it now says it has jurisdiction to investigate crimes in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, crimes against Israel and also crimes by Israel. It has to be part of the cases, uh, has to be submitted to the, uh, uh, the court, but the court at the end, they decide about which case they want to uh, pick up uh, and to focus more. Uh, but this is one of uh, the cases. Here we are speaking about uh, the crime of extrajudicial execution. Uh, and for this as a crime, you want to show that it's not just an isolated incident and not an isolated case. Uh, it's not one case only. Uh, we provide them uh, all the cases because the extrajudicial execution and uh, you know the willful killings, uh, this is one of the crimes before also the uh, ICC these days. Donna, if I can bring you back in here, I mean, the Israelis would say, look, this is a manned checkpoint. Um, the checkpoints have been attacked in the past. And here you have a car that swerves, um, swerves into the checkpoint. Um, I, I think an Israeli soldier was, was sent flying by the vehicle. That's according to them. Um, and that they're acting in self-defense. What do you say to that? I think one thing that we need to keep in mind is that the checkpoint itself is an illegal checkpoint. It's within two Palestinian areas. So we can't, you know, we can't um, deny the fact that this is an illegal checkpoint. Now, let's say even if this was an accident on, in the U.S. or in another area or an Israeli by accident rammed into a police checkpoint um, within Israel, they would not move forward with immediate killing. They can disarm the person. Uh, they can arrest them on the spot. I think as forensic architecture has shown in their investigation is that Ahmed was shot six times in two seconds, I believe, or four seconds. And four of these bullets were while he was already on the ground. Um, so there are methods for disarming. I mean, we had seen that. We can 
here draw a direct comparison with Black Americans in the U.S. and police brutality and how many you know, Black Americans have been killed by the police for minor misdemeanors and, and minor acts. While we have seen the riots at the Capitol where, you know, they were the police were able to disarm the protesters because the majority of them were white. And so we cannot disregard the systematic racism um, of oppression that is very present in this case. And we don't believe Ahmed meant to ram his car. We knew in our hearts on that day. I mean, it was his sister's wedding, knowing Ahmed. And that's why the family didn't rest until, you know, we went different routes and forensic architecture was able to establish some of these facts so how does, of what actually took place. And I'm sorry for your loss. And I know I must be very you know emotional for the family talking about it. And he was about to be getting married in a couple of months. And I mean, you have to question why on earth would anybody ram their car into a checkpoint, the point that, that you have already made um, when he had so much to live for. And-, and accidents happen. I mean, I think this is the problem. I mean, this is one of the main issues is that Palestinians are not allowed to make an accident. They're not allowed an error. They're not allowed, you know, you, you could be on your phone in the car and swerve in the wrong direction. And immediately you're in threat. You have to be on constant alert when you're there as a Palestinian because a human error is not extended to you. Will forensic architecture, Shoadi, get involved in this case and others in terms of trying to bring evidence before the International Criminal uh, Court? Because Israel has said that they will not cooperate with any of those investigations. Yeah, so forensic architecture has conducted investigations in Palestine um, that were considered by the ICC when they were determining whether to open up an investigation into Israeli crimes against humanity. Um, this includes our investigation into the extrajudicial killing of Razan al-Najjar, a paramedic nurse in Gaza. This includes our investigation into the human rights violations in the last major Gaza war in 2014, the massacres that happened in Rafah in August 2014. It includes our uh, major study into the settlements and the regime of conquer and divide that exists in the West Bank. So these three submissions were already made to the ICC. They were considered. And um, we are more than happy to cooperate with the ICC in regards to uh, this case, which points to extrajudicial killings as well. Um, I mean, some of the cases in Gaza are pretty horrendous, right? Where you have vehicles that were targeted with children inside and just, you know, disemboweled children and, and, uh, you know, women and families that were cut down in 2014 in the Gaza war. I mean, the list of violations in Gaza goes beyond the time I think we have for this podcast. Uh, but at the very least, I mean, we the Rafah uh, project that we did examined a series of massacres that were happening in Gaza. Uh, and I don't use this word lightly in the sense that you had a one-ton bomb being dropped in a densely populated, more densely populated part of Rafah. Um, so there is no principle of distinction. There's no principle of proportionality. Um, and what, what you see is it is an exaggerated level of violence in Gaza. Um, but in other parts of Palestine, you have this consistent daily violence that Palestinians are faced with. And Ahmed is one of those many cases of people who uh, are killed through lethal force, who are denied medical attention, whose bodies are humiliated and degraded. Um, uh, that we're starting to increasingly document.
Shawan, would you say that the International Criminal Court has a chance here of delivering some kind of, of justice? Does Al-Haq have confidence in that process? Or, you know, I mean, the Israelis say it's very political um, and that they're just trying, you know, it's even anti-Semitic uh, and against Israel and that it's not a neutral body and that they're going to do everything they can to discredit it. You have to be aware that maybe uh, later on they will describe you or they identify you as anti-Semitic person because you address these facts uh, happened also on the ground. This is what the Israeli doing these days. They are exaggerating. Anyone, uh, you know, criticize or uh, bring up uh, and speak out about what's going on in Palestine, he or she become uh, anti-Semitic and they give him or her this label. I think this is the label that the Israelis, you know, give to anyone who criticizes or he speak the truth. Well, the Israeli uh, government the may do that, but I know that there are lots of Israelis who are... No, 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 I, I'm speaking about the Israeli government. And there are Israeli human rights organizations like Beth Salem and others who speak out against this kind of violence, right? Before I joined you, I was in uh, also an event with the EU parliamentarians. Uh, it was also a uh, public one. I can give you and send you also the link. Yeah. Uh, things like that also it was discussed. Me and Hagai from Bitsalem, we were together you know, jointly in that one. Uh, this is you know, the case. I'm not uh, saying that all the Israelis are speaking about the officials these days. I'm speaking about the rightist wings, you know, groups, how they exaggerate in using these things. Uh, this is not a matter of discussion, but uh, another thing is, uh, if we have no confidence and hope that we will not cooperate uh, with the ICC. But you will. Have a, a full confidence, full confidence that uh, the ICC will go after the Israeli criminals uh, because the crimes uh, happened and going on also at the same time. And uh, Israeli, they try to attack and to paralyze this uh, uh, justice institution. Uh, I don't think that the uh, uh, state parties will let Israel uh, to success in that, because if they success, this is, will be catastrophic for the justice system over the world. It will not just, it has not to concern Palestinians only, it has to concern everybody everywhere over the world. That's by power, by smearing against X and Y, you can do anything you want. And you can go in which called, you know, the uh, impunity uh, all the time. And if there is if there is impunity continue, the crimes will continue. That's the uh, case. I have a full confidence with the ICC. One of the problems of our time are uh, regimes who wish to label all of mainstream media fake news because they can try to discredit them and try to shield us from the truth. But Dana, Erikat, the last word to you. Currently, um, almost nine months later, Ahmed's body is still being withheld uh, by the Israelis. I think that is an important point that we need to touch upon and also have Al-Haq talk about. Um, Ahmed is one of 73 bodies, Palestinian bodies, a number of them who are children, who are being withheld without burial, without returning them to the family, to garner peace and to eight of them children. Eight of them are children, correct. And this is collective punishment. This is carrying the pain 
beyond just the killing of a child or of a son or of a daughter. Um, and this in itself, and I'll, I'll actually leave it to Shahwan to talk a little bit, because I think this is something very important to put into the spotlight, is that the withholding of these bodies, and there are also around over 300 bodies in numbered cemeteries, I believe, that have also not been returned to their families. And this sort of collective punishment is constitute it goes against international human rights. For, I mean, punishment for what in in Ahmad's case, probably. I well, mean, the families. The families. It's, it's collective punishment. No, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, in some of these cases, the fa- I mean, even if the fa- even if the, the the individual was guilty of something, I mean, the families are certainly not. They have the right to, I think, by any international legal standard, Shawan bury their their dead and and take their loved ones back and mourn their loved ones. Why on earth does Israel do that? I think they want to punish and they want to broken down the effort of the families. That's the case. They use it for political reasons, for no other reasons. That's the case. And even the uh, CAT, I mean convention, the Committee of the Convention Against Torture at the UN in 2016 they recognize this as a way of torture of the families and ill treatment of the families. They mentioned specifically, you know, the, the bodies uh, of the murders in the hands of the uh, Israelis. Uh, more than that, uh, what the Israeli can lose, for instance, if they give back the bodies and respect the, the families' rights, you know, to give the uh, bodies. Ahmed's family, the first contact with us, you know what they ask for? They ask for one thing only. Could you please help us to get back Ahmed's body, to bury him according to our customs and just to pray on him? That's, that's the main thing. And still, and this is an emotional thing because we deal with the families on a daily basis. Just you can imagine a, a, a mom said to me, you know, in one case when I met with them, said, you know, when I go to the kitchen, you know, I go every day, maybe hundreds of times. When I go to the kitchen and look at the fridge, directly I remember my uh, beloved, you know, uh, son. Why? Because I know that they put them, you know, they frozen their bodies. And this is yet the case. The Israelis, they used to frozen their bodies. And we, when they send back, you know, when they give families back the bodies, we couldn't make an autopsy for the bodies because it's like a metal, like this. It needs 96 hours to be flexible. I'm, I'm and they shocked. start cut. This I is the case. I'm shocked that that occurs because I know the Israelis never used to do that. But um, in, anyway, Shawan Jabarin, you know, good, good luck on your on your um, efforts at Al Haq Human Rights Organization. And uh, Dana, I'm sorry. Uh, Shadi, I think. Uh, Shadi, may I just add here that the practice of withholding bodies. Uh, as a tool of collective punishment and as a as a bargaining chip in future negotiations yes. is something that has been sanctioned by the Israeli High Court. So the entire Israeli political and legal establishment is entirely complicit in this practice. Um, and I think that also deserves to be called out and condemned, which is why the ICC investigation is so important, because it can hold that practice that is sanctioned by the Israeli establishment into account. Donna Erekat, thank you so much. Shawadi from the uh, Forensic you, Architecture 
and Shawan uh, Jabarin from Al Haq. Great to talk to all of you. And uh, I know, I think we'll we'll talk in the future as this investigation from the ICC then begins. Thank you. Thank you. The announcement of the International Criminal Court to investigate alleged war crimes against Israel by Palestinian groups like Hamas and alleged war crimes by Israel in Gaza and the West Bank is being met with stiff resistance by Israel. In part two of our backstory on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we feature an interview from Israel on why the Israeli government refuses to cooperate. I'm Dana Lewis. Thanks for listening to Backstory. Share our podcast link, and you can follow my newsletter on danalewis.substack.com. danalewis.substack.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.